I would encourage people if they have not uh, done some self-evaluations, they, they consider doing that because some people stumble through life not quite knowing uh, why they are struggling with, uh, with different things and assessments really do provide a, a mirror that you can examine yourself through and they're not perfectly right and they're not perfectly wrong um, but they do help you understand another piece about yourself which is uh, it, it will lead to a kind of more self, self-fulfilled life. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Artificial intelligence, I don't do a lot of shows on that, but really work is changing. Our life is changing. You know, think about it. You can ask your phone for details and information that wasn't even possible or on the internet just 30 years ago. And it's instantly there. You can ask uh, your player, whatever version you buy, I'm not going to mention a brand, and it can start playing the music you want just straight online within a nanosecond. So it is amazing. So today's guest, Eric Shepard, really was one of the first people involved with computers way back in the UK in the 70s, then created and became an entrepreneur with uh, distance and telecommuting in the 90s. And I said, what? So that that wasn't even thought of back then. It wasn't even approved of or socially approved, I guess, is the word we want to use. So he's now written a brand new book around talent transformation and how we need to think differently and how life is changing for us. So it's us individually. So it applies to every single person listening. And he really gives us a model, but also his story. So it's great. But one of the things we talk about is the critical importance of taking assessments as part of this journey of clarity to know that you know that you know. Do you know your why, but do you also know your skills? Do you know what personal style is, uh, your preferences, and do you know what your core values are? Are you able to make a values-based decision? So all of these are included in our new, brand new course called the Quest for Purpose e-course, which is based on my book, but there's four assessments that are included in it. That's the personal style, the values, the self-worth, as well as the stress indicator and health planner. And if you're in leadership, if you want to go off grid and get the leadership skills assessment, because we have 10 assessments, uh, that's another one that's there for you. So consider thinking about, you know, get clarity for yourself. Uh, The Quest for Purpose e-course is online, available for you 24-7 to be able to take or share that with somebody who is going through this clarity process and trying to figure out their why or really wants to take their life to the next level. So uh, thank you as always for being a listener. If you like what we're doing, please pass it on. Leave a positive review on whatever platform you're listening on or come find us and join us at crgleader.com and learn more about our tools and resources. Uh, how we can serve you beyond this podcast. So here's today's show around talent transformation with Eric Shepard. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, we like to cover a lot of different topics in our shows around personal and professional development, wellness, leadership, and today is no exception. We have an expert really helping us with this whole idea of transformation, 
talent transformation, but also individual team and organizational transformation. So welcome to the show, Eric Shepard. Well, welcome, Thank you very Eric. much, Ken. I appreciate being here. And you ha- you're hailing from the warmer climates of uh, Florida. So we were just talking off air. I think the temperature is slightly better than where it is in Vancouver, Canada, where I'm located at the moment. Uh, yes, absolutely. It's warmer down here. <laughs> I heard a Norwegian say the other day, there is no such thing as bad weather. There's just bad clothing. And uh, so even down here in Miami, we, we kind of get chilly sometimes because we just don't have to, we don't wear the right clothes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> bad clothing. Well, that's one way to be able to present it. However... <laughs> uh, my new son-in-law, who worked in Hawaii for several years, uh, just likes to have shorts and no shirt. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's the perfect attire for the Norwegian areas in wintertime. That being said, Eric, welcome to the show. And Eric, you know, we're going to get into this whole talent transformation, your book that's called that title, uh, by that title, uh, but I want to kind of go to the background first. We always like to find a little bit about your story and your journey first. And now you have a tad of an accent, so I'm not sure if you were born in Miami. And um, am I guessing correctly? <laughs> You're guessing absolutely correctly. Yeah. So I I was born and raised in the UK and uh, w- went to uh, school in in the UK. Uh, then. I got some high-tech jobs, um, and purely by coincidence. In fact, when I joined the high-tech industry, I, uh, no one quite knew what it was. I remember my, my father saying at the time, this is in the late 70s, that computers were kind of scary and we should be careful of them. Uh, then uh, I ended up on a board of directors uh, in the UK of a company that was doing some technology transfers into the U.S., and so I uh, migrated to the U.S., first lived in uh, New York for a while, then Connecticut for a while. And uh, I then started my own uh, business representing other um, companies. And uh, that led me to be traveling a lot. Um, and I also realized at that time that telecommuting or work from home, remote work working was really going to work well for us. And this is kind of in the middle 90s, end of the 90s. And the reason was to recruit people in Connecticut to come to the office was expensive. And we were kind of a small entrepreneurial team. So we wanted to uh, attract talent and expertise from all over the place. So um, luckily, Al Gore had invented the internet for us. And we were able to have employees uh, around the country uh, and have them uh, handle their email. And we, in, we in, uh, were one of the first into voice over IP phones uh, where, where you had a hardware instrument that did that. Mm. So I was uh, returning home one evening uh, from the airport and there was a terrible snowstorm and a journey that would normally take me half an hour, took me about three hours. Uh, and on that journey, I reached an epiphany that maybe um, uh, I should be telecommuting as well or teleworking as well. And then I looked around and said, well, where would be a good place to live? And I set up three criteria, which is fairly typical for me. I set up decision criteria and I set up a criteria. So one, I wanted it to be warm because I didn't want to be stuck uh, uh, in uh, a car going from the airport to home in the snow. So that was one. The second criteria was I like to be near the ocean. 
um, for some reason. That's just uh, intrinsic to me. And then thirdly, I wanted to be able to travel internationally and nationally easily. So Miami met all those criteria, good airport. I could fly to Europe, the Middle East, North, uh, North America, South America. Um, and so that's why I ended up in Miami. Long answer to your question there, Ken. Well, there you go. You did your criteria as part of it. However, uh, in the summer, it can be slightly humid there. Yes, it can be humid and it can be very hot. And uh, amusingly, um, of course, we live in air conditioning. So it's the, the hazard is if a tropical storm or a hurricane comes through and cuts out the electricity, then things become miserable. But as long as you have electricity, it works okay. And so most of us that live in this area will tend to stay indoors uh, over the summer. Now, amusingly, my uh, uh, friends from Europe all think that the summer is a great time to visit. And, and uh, so we see a lot of European visitors here, but most North American visitors would, would come during the winter. Of course, of course, because uh, we're a little sharper on that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, on the impact of that. Now, let's yeah. just kind of backtrack a little bit, and I want to go a little deeper into your story. What yeah. part of the UK did you uh, grow up in? Born and raised in uh, London, West London specifically. Uh, the town was called uh, South Harrow, which is a suburb of London. Uh, and it, it doesn't have much uh, claim to fame except that uh, there was a Harrow School, which is a public school that Winston Churchill went to. Mm, well, there you go. And, uh, of course, nobody's heard of Winston Churchill. Just kidding. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, excellent. Glad that you have some heritage with that. Now, what did your... Um, parents do as far as their growing up and sort of their their background the businesses or roles they were in well that's uh, they had very different lives to me they uh, were uh, born prior to the war so when the uh, second world war started my dad must have been around uh, 14 years old and my mom must have been around 10 years old give or take a year so as a teenager, my dad appeared to kind of track the war the way we might uh, track uh, video games or, or track politics today. And uh, so he really had a, a good understanding. Um, luckily, the, the war, Second World War was over by the time he was drafted into the um, um, uh, services, drafted into the um, Air Force. Um, interestingly, my mother uh, was the daughter of a grocer, and a grocer so selling kind of butter and eggs and, and such things. And she, um, uh, during that period, during the Second World War, a food was rationed in the UK. So you would get a, a voucher from the government uh, to say how much butter you could have and how much other produce you could have because uh, the UK is an island and it couldn't produce all of its food. It had to import food. Um, and so that meant that she grew up with this kind of tension of uh, her school friends wanting to get extra butter or extra sugar. And uh, so she felt kind of a little uh, troubled by that. She was evacuated. So your mom was evacuated. She was put probably to the west coast of mainland? That's right. And uh, so uh, uh, obviously most of the bombing was uh, was centered in London. So sending the children away to more country areas, there'd be less uh, risk to them. 
um, she didn't find it uh, very uh, compatible for, for her, so she ran away and ended up back um, in, the, uh, in, in the city. And my dad stayed in the city all the time. Now, your dad, you, he was drafted to the, to the Air Force. Did he stay in it, or what, did he, what was his profession for most of his life? Um, he was a, a maintenance engineer in the Air Force, and uh, out of that, he, uh, and he, there was the conscription, I think, was probably for two or three years. So he left the Air Force with some uh, skills of, of, uh, around uh, maintenance, specifically around aircraft engines and airframes. He then uh, was a, a draftsman. Um, maybe they were called copy draftsmen. And the, um, we didn't have, or they didn't have, copying machines, especially to copy big drawings. So it'd be a drawing of an um, aircraft piece or a building or something. And so he would have a transparent paper that would go over the original drawing and he would transcribe it so that they had a copy of the drawing. So there'd be these large um, uh, drafting offices that would just be uh, copying these drawings. Uh, and then, of course, machines came along. He studied while he was doing that. So he went to night school to improve his um, his knowledge and skills. And uh, he then um, went into the fire protection industry. He joined a company called Walter Kitty. And Walter Kitty um, designs and, and manufactures alarm systems and fire suppression systems. And uh, in that, he has uh, seven patents to his name that he designed fire extinguishers, um, got more involved in research and development so he could draw them, research and develop them. Um, and uh, he got into high expansion foam. So how they would use high expansion foam to put out fires aboard ships, fires aboard um, uh, oil rigs. Uh, although water is very plentiful, plentiful um, on a ship, it's not always the best idea to, um, to to sink the ship to put out the fire. So they would have different kinds of fire suppression systems in there. And I remember, Ken, as a kid, um, he'd be testing foam generation. Uh, so this would, uh, foam generation machines, and this would be like washing up liquid soap, you know, that you'd have all the bubbles. And uh, as kids, we would run through the uh, uh, the, the foam uh, I, I'm not sure if my dad was kind of testing to see if it was possible, and if they had to drag us out unwell, then they would have known it wasn't such a good idea. But it was fun. It was one of my memories as a kid. Um, he passed away around three years ago now, and uh, he's very generously said, I want Eric to have my patents. And, and so I looked at these documents. They were absolutely magnificent because this was in the days when uh, type had to be placed in a typesetting machine um, and drawings would have to be carved into a piece of metal. Um, I'm not sure even how they did it, but uh, so it's, it's a really beautiful set of documents uh, of these um, different fire extinguishers and fire suppression systems that he'd invented when I was a kitty. Well, I can't say, Eric, that I've ever interviewed anybody who's got a father who invented fire suppression foam. So that's pretty cool. So I, I appreciate that. So obviously, you know, your desire around curiosity and obviously moving towards technology, uh, you came by it honestly in your family and probably supported by your dad to kind of pursue this direction if you were interested in it. 
Yeah, that, that's right. My, my dad ended up moving away from London uh, in the 70s when uh, I wasn't uh, very keen to move with him or, or, or my mom because they wanted to go to a place that actually was very depressed and, and the whole country was depressed anyway. So I stayed in London. Uh, working and studying, uh, eventually had to give up studying because uh, I need to focus on work to, to pay the rent at that time. I stumbled into the computer industry in, in those days, and you're almost certainly too young to remember, but you would have classified ads. So you would open up a newspaper and you'd run your finger down all these different ads looking for jobs. And there was this curious one, I don't think it even said um, computer engineer, but it said something and, and so I went to the interview and I had no idea the job I was going for, but I ended up with a fantastic company. This company was called Burroughs. And at, at, the, at that time, their biggest competitor was IBM. And I uh, got a role of um, fixing computers in the West End of London. Uh, in uh, school, I had been studying uh, electronics and vacuum tubes and transistors and microprocessors. So I knew things kind of at a molecular level and a theoretical level. But then I w went into this team that was uh, had to make sure that all the banking computers were, were running correctly. And I learned a lot, and I learned it fast. Um, and because of that rapid learning, rapid promotion, I, after being with the company for three years, I thought, well, what's next? <laughs> and I was kind of 21 years old, and my boss said to me, well, you've grown so quickly, you're going to have to think about being kind of 30 before you get your next promotion. And being someone who didn't know any better, I, I thought that was, uh, I didn't really want to wait around for, for 10 years for a promotion. So I then applied for another job. I was uh, lucky enough to um, work with a uh, Clive Sinclair, who was a British entrepreneur that had created the um, Sinclair 1000, uh, Timex 1000, it was called here. And so I worked alongside him for a while, joined another company uh, that did uh, telex equipment on the IBM PC. So this was revolutionary at the time. Now, we, of course, we all use email and we've forgotten about telex. Uh, but telex was a, a critical thing for international trade to place orders quickly and to understand the status of a shipment. And so um, also important in the banking industry. So we uh, created some background software for the IBM PC. And it's that product that brought me to the US. There was a, a company called uh, MCI International here in the US. And they had recognized the benefit of switching from a kind of telex network to a mobile, uh, for, to, from a telex network into a, a dial-up modem network and, and provide a bridge between the two. And we had the right software at the right place, right time. So uh, I came to the U.S. to kind of manage the sales rollout of that and support of that and build a team. And that's how we built the expertise of technology, international technology transfer. Well, what uh, year did you move to the U.S.? I think it was 1984, 1984, 85. You've been there for a while. Yeah, I've been here for a while. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. And when you said in the 90s about, you know, starting your own company and working virtually, uh, sorry, I am older. In, um, I was in the 90s. I was, had a consulting project in Detroit, and we had to fly back and forth every week because there wasn't yeah. email yet. Bye. This is 95, 96. Yeah. So, we, I mean, there might have been email for some tech companies, but not for the average population. 
Right. Interesting. Yeah. Because that started to come to play probably 99, 2000. They just around that timeline. So I know some of you listening who are younger, you said, what? What, there was life without email? <laughs> but uh, both Eric and I have lived that. And, of course, that was just phone calls back at that time. So that was revolutionary for you to have sort of a virtual company uh, in yes, the late it, 90s. Uh, that it really was. That's basically unheard of. Yeah. We, we started off with ISDN phones, um, and that was a, a, a data network for te- tele- telephony systems. Um, and a curious story you might be interested in. At the time, I had uh, an assistant. She was a wonderful lady, but she was kind of lonely uh, because in Connecticut, where we worked, um, there, there really wasn't many ways for her to socialize. And, and, and so I said, well, there's, there's this Internet thing, and people are getting together on, on, um, in different social groups, and I don't really know how it works, but you might want to check it out. Well, she came back to me about um, six months later, and she said, Eric, I've met this amazing man uh, on, on the Internet, and I've been visiting him regularly, and it's really working out. I thought it's wonderful. Then she came back, and uh, a couple of months later, she said, oh, we've decided to get married, so I'm going to go and live with him, but it's about a three-hour drive away, so unfortunately, I won't be able to, to work for you anymore. And I said, oh, wait a minute, we can work this out. You know, there's this internet and there's email and we can get an ISDN phone. We can somewhere, we can somehow make this work. Her name was Marty and uh, she then took on the customer service role and continued to be my assistant and it worked out beautifully. I then had a PR person who was working out of London who uh, moved to Connecticut. Uh, Sorry, she moved to Maine. Her name was Joan Thorpe. Um, so she joined me virtually and did an amazing job. And in fact, Joan was the co-author of the book. So um, after many years of working together where she was looking after public relations and press releases and, and writing for the company, I, I reached out to her after I'd left the company and I said, Joan, I'm thinking about writing this book. And she said, I've always wanted to write a book. I said, well, let's do it together. So we were very... Yeah, uh, early on we were into um, telecommuting. Yeah, cool. Well, if you think about it now, if you if you mention it, it's sort of expected. uh, Yeah. In you know new technology, you know now Zoom is a a verb instead of a noun, just like Kleenex is. So everybody knows what that means. Uh, So well, we're going to do a Zoom call. Even Grandma was on one on New Year's, and she's 91. So what what is this? How does this work? So yeah. uh, you were way ahead of your time. Now, when you left uh, your U.S. company to start your own consulting firm, what were you doing for the firm? Like, what was the service you were offering to others? So just uh, it, so in the 90s, uh, i just go through to put the context in shape here. In the 90s, I was um, offering a service such as a manufacturer's representative service. So I would take overseas technology, I would bring it here and I would say, well, you need to improve your brochures like this. You need to um, uh, have them on eight and a half by 11 rather than a four paper as a simple example. And so we would dress up the product and then uh, identify the key markets. And, and so we had a number of manufacturers. But what I realized was that it has an upper and lower limit because if you're super successful, the company you're representing is going to uh, just take over the market themselves. And if you fail, well, there's no fun of that. So you, 
you're predestined to be mediocre and never be super successful. There was one com company I was representing that was called Question Mark. And uh, that, that product line um, really intrigued me because it was around assessing knowledge, skills, and abilities. And so in the year 2000, uh, the British supplier and my company merged. And I shed off all of the other companies, obviously, in an orderly fashion so that everybody was comfortable. Um, and we then, at that time, I became CEO of uh, Question Mark. And uh, the person who originally started the company became chairman. He's now the executive uh, director of that company. And we started building the, the company from there. So I took on kind of front of house responsibilities, so sales, marketing, support activities. He took off uh, more of the back office, like product development. Um, and then our roles evolved, and I stepped down from that company a couple of years ago. And it, uh, part of the reason was it was feeling kind of a groundhog day uh, as far as, well, I'm here in another um, uh, country and I'm doing the same speech as I did before and I'm having conference calls with my staff and I really wanted to develop myself more. So I, um, we got an orderly plan together where we took on some external funding uh, and managed to uh, recruit some really wonderful people as to replace me, a new chairman, um, a new CFO. So these these this group of people could kind of take the company uh, to the next level, which they've been doing very successfully. So after I was had no more day-to-day -day responsibilities, I then said, what am I going to do when I grow up? And then I, uh, I just started talking with friends and anyone that would talk to me. Uh, it was a time we, we could still uh, 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 visit with each other, so we got to talk and um, realized that I had this intrigue about how mindset and skill set came together to support performance. And as a CEO, I'd always been a bit confused. It's like, how do we help create an environment that all of our employees are going to thrive and be successful? And how does kind of uh, values and, and uh, personality traits, how does that intersect with emotional intelligence and social intelligence? And how does that intersect with providing the right incentives and psychological safety? And, and how does that uh, intersect with uh, behaviors? Why are people behaving on the job the way they are behaving? So this started to intrigue me. So I started putting myself into uh, learning situations. I got some certifications. Um, and uh, kind of built this concept that to help other leaders understand um, how this all intersects, or how people, mindset and skill set can support performance. Mm. So you created the talent transformation pyramid, and you said there's 12 factors that are part of that. To serve the audience, we want to be as... Um, direct and articulate as possible. So, uh, take us into uh, take us into some of that, Eric, as far as, you know, some ap applicable sort of insights, thoughts, ideas, strategies that the audience can take away today. And we probably have a mixed group listening from, you know, individual entrepreneurs to other people who lead larger companies. What I'll do, thinking about organizational leaders, we'll kind of start from the top of the pyramid. 
So, and, and we can think of every factor with, that I'll uh, chat about within the pyramid. It, it, it's measurable to a certain extent. You could, uh, in a perfect world, measure it. Um, and so at the top is outcomes. So that would be things like profit and loss, um, cash flow, customer satisfaction, employee satisfaction. So you, you'd have a number to know whether you're on target. Below that uh, is uh, readiness. So readiness is another factor. So what um, kind of gives you an indication that you are ready to perform? So there's a lot of basics around that. So it's around um, doing a SWOT analysis so you know what the competitive landscape looks like. Uh, the mission, vision, purpose, do we have everyone know what they're meant to do and how they're meant to do it? So um, is the team ready to perform? Um, under that, we have competencies. So competencies are skills used in context. So I might know how to uh, join two cables together, um, but can I do that when I'm up a pole? Or can I do that when I'm in um, a, an underground cavern? So there's these different competencies. And competence, we, we have behavioral competencies. So am I a team player? Do I uh, work well with others? Do I provide leadership when required? Do I have good conflict resolution skills? Am I cooperative, collaborative? So those are kind of uh, behavioral competencies. And on the other side, uh, we have uh, functional competences. So functional competences are things like uh, being able to do something, like I can repair a car, I can use Microsoft Word, but these are skills that we learn, and so we can do them or not do them. Under those competences, behavioral competences and functional competences, we can think of a situation or environment. So if we work for an oppressive boss, um, who's micromanaging us, it'll be very difficult to behave in a way that is creative or um, uh, uh, can help me perform well because I've got this suppressive boss who's underlying, uh, undermining the psychological safety of, of my work. So that's one example. Another is incentive. We saw this with um, the Wells Fargo uh, banking um, nonsense where we had good people, they were well trained, they knew the right thing, they knew the wrong thing. However, their incentive structure incentivized them to do bad things. So to, to have the right kind of behave, behaviors on the job, you need to make sure that someone has the appropriate uh, psychological safety and the appropriate incentives. Now for functional skills, whether someone can do something, uh, we need to give them the right information, the right tools, and the right physical environment. So uh, an easy example of this would be assembling IKEA furniture. If, uh, if we didn't have the tools and we didn't have the, uh, uh, inf uh, the instructions and we were asked to do it in the snow, uh, in uh, some northern uh, province of Canada, we would find it extremely difficult to uh, create this, uh, to assemble this furniture. But if we went into a kind of a, a house and we had a, the tools required, we had the instructions, most of us would uh, would be able to do it. So, in the workplace, making sure people have the right tools to do the job, information, which is becoming more and more important to know what to do. Uh, and then, of course, the right environment, not too hot, not too cold, not too damp, uh, et cetera. So that's how teams 
and people will play within teams. But underlying that is um, is our personality, and in our personality there are kind of six or uh, well, altogether, there's about 3,300 measurements we can make of a personality, but there's really six or uh, 16 uh, traits that we track. So we can think of introversion, extroversion. We can think of uh, style as far as thinking or feeling, um, of uh, uh, values, preferences, motives, and these are kind of core to us as individuals. This is kind of how we function in the world. That's personality. But we can learn how to function more effectively. So if we think about going to a fine dine restaurant or we think about going to a sports game, we, we behave differently because we've learned that what's appropriate for which situation. So um, the uh, leaders might see people behaving badly on the job. They can have an intervention to say, let everyone understand emotional intelligence, understand themselves, understand others, understand that differences uh, are, are good in many respects, but we still have to get along and we still have to resolve challenges together. So learning this social, emotional, communication intelligence is a good. So, so we've got personality at the bottom, then we've got social, emotional intelligence, and then we look at the situation and that all of that together would define how we're going to behave. Now on the other side, uh, we can think about physical and cognitive abilities. So we can think about kind of how uh, nimble and active we are in mind and body um, and that will determine um, what we might be able to do and what we might not be able to do. But then we can learn these skills and learn those skills using tools. We then become capable in the job. So there's some things we can learn and we can make accommodations. Um, but un uh, underlying this, we do have personalities and, and physical and, and cognitive potential limitations. On the job, it's very rare that uh, physical or cognitive uh, limitation would uh, be a predictor of, uh, of high or low performance. Most predictors around behaviors, and these days that, uh, how, how well people work with others, how well uh, they collaborate with others. Mm. Mm -hmm. There was a lot there, uh, and that's why we wrote a book about it. So we developed uh, this uh, pyramid uh, again, and then people said, well, there was a lot. And so uh, we, we took a year writing it just to help explain it and tease it out. And there's also some online resources at talenttransformation.com so people can, can understand the subtleties of this. Mm. So when you're doing your work in transformation of teams, what other insights are you learning about why teams are not, or individuals are not performing at their highest levels? What are some of the sort of insights you're taking away from that? I think a key thing is it's down to the leaders and the managers. So if the leaders can bring people together, help, uh, uh, help everybody understand the direction that uh, is needed, that uh, they need to go in, and so develop a plan and have a plan to execute the plan. Um, that's one key thing. Without that leadership, um, the, the team will just go in circles and uh, become um, a bunch of very smart people not doing anything very useful. So that's one. And the second is um, it's the manager. In fact, uh, Gallup wrote a, a good book on this 
based on the um, uh, data that they had from Strength Finders, which is one of their assessments, and uh, uh, performance data. And they, uh, they also have a Q12 or 12 questions about employee engagement. So they kind of triangulated the data together, triangulated the data together and came up with a conclusion, it's the manager. So if the manager can provide the right kind of direction, the right kind of psychological safety, the right kind of incentives, they'll have a, a high performing team. And so much of it is about the, the softer side of what we do and how we do it, uh, rather than our hard skills. So if we're motivated to learn, if we're motivated to do a great job, then we will we'll develop the skills we need because we're, we have that underlying motivation. So creating um, uh, an organization, creating um, uh, an environment where people want to perform well is the, the responsibility of the, of the leaders and managers. So I would say that's the greatest insight. Mm. So what drove you, Eric, to want to get into this space? I mean, you were successful in these other companies. They had done well for you, and you'd seen some of this stuff, but not everybody goes out and writes a book about it. I'm really pleased you asked that question, Ken, because uh, I've cons I consider myself very lucky. You know, I stumbled into a number of things, and I've done well and been very lucky. When I look at the fourth industrial revolution, I realized that there might be a lot of people who are not so lucky. So the fourth industrial revolutions, um, well, let me just go through the uh, why it's called the fourth industrial revolution. So the first industrial revolution was the harnessing of uh, steam power and machines. So these machines would be individually made by blacksmiths and, and craftsmen. The second industrial revolution was around the standardization of uh, things like screws and threads and quality of steel, quality of uh, materials and production lines. So now we could have peripheral manufacturers feeding into a production line. And so Ford is a classic example of, uh, of that. So that was the second industrial revolution. Third industrial revolution is around computers and storage and efficiency and supply chain management, um, information systems. Uh, and uh, and that, all of these will continue, of course. The fourth industrial revolution is about the use of automation. Um, and people often quote AI, but uh, it's, the, it's the machine learning algorithms, it's the new materials. So if we think of a drone, to fly a drone without the aid of this uh, machine learning that can uh, adjust the uh, trajectory given wind conditions and other conditions. So it's a lot of technology in a drone that makes flying it simple. It's just one example. So that's going to change job roles where people would have to climb down sewers to inspect them or climb up chimneys to inspect them. We can now use a, a drone, which is great. But what that's going to mean is that there's a lot of tasks currently being done by people, uh, particularly rec uh, repetitive tasks. Those are going to be taken on by machines because I see that if we don't uh, uh, understand the issues of mindset and skill set, that... Uh, there will be a lot of disenfranchised people. There'll be a lot of people that say, I was meant to have a job for life and this machine's replaced me. I'm at, at 40 or 50 or 60 years old and I have no contribution to make. So um, looking, at the, uh, looking forward, Ken, I was worried that um, we weren't paying enough attention to 
ensuring our workforces were engaged uh, and uh, we, we were able to all enjoy the benefits of the fourth industrial revolution, not just the elite, the, the, uh, the developers and the programmers, but how do other people engage? So maybe they were fly, you know, maybe they were inspecting a sewer. Well, let's cross train them. They still have all that uh, identification knowledge. Let's cross train them so they can now uh, use drones to do this more efficiently. So that, that was the, the driver. I saw on our horizon a societal uh, problem that would uh, be quite scary. And as I head at some point into retirement, I would rather live in a stable world rather than an unstable world where there's a conflict between the haves and the have-nots. Mm. So uh, who would be your clients now that you've moved into this new role, new, new business, Eric? Who would be engaging you to be able to serve them? So um, we don't particularly go after specific clients. Um, so we're lucky enough to be able to develop and provide resources to help people understand the new world of work and new business models, etc. And uh, all of those resources are free on the website. There are some specific tools on the website that where you need to become a member so we can brand some of our content. Some um, executive coaches, for instance, might want to take our articles and, and put their own name on it. So we have a branding mechanism for that. Uh, and uh, so there's a, there's a membership model, uh, but th for the average person in the street, uh, it's all free of charge. So um, more of our content is going up on uh, YouTube. So we look for YouTube followership. We do uh, podcasts, and you do an amazing podcast. We'll have one just focused on the future of work, how business models are changing, how this is going to affect uh, talent and people, and how to keep people engaged as they move from uh, job to job and, and change the context of their work. Mm. Now, I don't usually get into this space, but uh, uh, but we have you here anyways, but should people be worried about not having a job or I have an answer to my own question, but an answer I'm asking you, or does AI and automation open up new opportunities? It opens up new opportunities. I think the key thing is we've got to recognize that we need to embrace learning and embrace change because there is going to be a lot of change. And, and so we can't push back on it um, because the, the, the Luddites tried to push back on the uh, first Industrial Revolution and uh, it just went steaming ahead without them. I think we do have to have a level of caution um, about AI. Um, but uh, there is still going to be plenty of work for everyone, um, but work is going to change. Well, that's fair enough. I still recall, I think it was Bill Gates who said there's going to be no need for everybody to have a personal computer. So <laughs> right. I, yeah. think, I think he got that wrong. So <laughs> uh, when we think about technology and where it's going, what's happening, and of course all of us carry more capability in our hands with our iPhones than they had in Apollo 11 or 13 or whatever. Oh, that's right. I mean, when, when I was fixing those computers in the West London, uh, in West, uh, West End of London, uh, that was managing uh, a major bank or major banks, uh, one per bank, um, the computing power and the memory of those machines is dwarfed by the thing that I carry in my pocket. I mean, those were just nothing. 
Um, I remember having five megabytes of disk drive in a filing cabinet. Um, and people, some of your listeners may, may not even know what a filing cabinet is, but it's a thing that's kind of five feet uh, tall and two feet deep and 18 inches wide, and that would be five megabytes. Now I'm disappointed if I can't get five gigabyte uh, in my hand. I probably got 64 gigabyte. Mm. So yeah, the world has moved on. Uh, and w- what we will see is that these tools support us, so there'll be augmentation of our work. Um, both physically and mentally. So um, physically, as uh, we can strap on a robot, it's essentially and lift ha- uh, heavier weights and move things around. We also already see robotic uh, uh, warehouses, but we'll see augmentation for information feeds. Um, and I think we'll get to a point where the goal is to reduce stress, um, provide the information that people need, and no more and no less, and so uh, there, there won't be as much uh, um, searching and hunting for information because we'll be fed the right information when we need it. Well, even when you can ask your phone to provide an answer to a question, and the fact that it's there immediately is uh, quite phenomenal uh, yeah. because both of us were around when the Internet started in uh, just how rudimentary it was. You probably remember, of course, when we had to live with DOS before Windows opened up and just the whole change of colon, C, backslash, (laughs) all those things that come with it. Now, uh, go back again. If I could just pick up, I'm sorry, Ken, if I could just pick up on what you're saying there. Let's imagine a world where um, I am qualified to do a job and now I realize the job is going away. And now I say, oh, well, what are the additional knowledge and skills do I need for another job? Well, um, what I really could find incredibly useful is if I had done an assessment and I knew my personality styles, I knew what I liked doing and I knew what I didn't like doing. And I had some records of um, how much emotional intelligence and, and uh, that I had developed. And I knew what my skills were. And if I could then start matching that intelligently to all the jobs out there and the tasks that were in those jobs, and also how long were those, are those jobs going to be around? Because there's jobs that don't exist anymore or, or won't exist. So I don't want to, uh, I'm, I'm getting shifted out of my current work. Okay, I want to get into new work, but I'd like to get into new work that is going to be around for a while. So having algorithms to match personalities, skills, and uh, and then say, well, you could do this job now, or you could do this Coursera course, you could do this online course, and you could start being on a trajectory to go after this career, which is going to have lots of uh, upside to it. So I would like to see um, these AI systems not only be intelligent servants, um, but, but collect data uh, from things like the salary potential, uh, if, if they know more about me and they know more about the world, then I could be matched to the kind of career opportunities that I would like to have. Mm, for sure. And you know, that's a lot of the work that we do here at CRG, and it's just wise to ah, be great. proactive and deliberate and intentional and you know, create self-awareness so you can move forward with that. So go yeah. back and remind us how people can find out about your work and some of this free offerings that you have. Yeah, so uh, if people go to uh, talenttransformation.com, 
you can click on resources and, and see the blog articles and, and uh, podcasts, uh, and, and there's lots of uh, information there. Um, you can subscribe to the newsletter, and so uh, each week we'll, we send out a newsletter just highlighting uh, what's changing and what's the impact of that change. Um, and if you go to talenttransformation.com slash book, you can find out more about the book where more of the details are explained and pop off over to uh, Amazon to pick one up if you enjoy the concept. Mm. Any final words of encouragement or insight or wisdom, Eric, as we depart today? Ken, knowing that you and your organization are involved in assessments, I think assessments are incredibly valuable to help us understand ourselves and, and understand others. Uh, so uh, I would encourage people, if they have not uh, done some self-evaluations, that they, they consider doing that because some people stumble through life not quite knowing uh, why they are struggling with, uh, with different things. And assessments really do provide a, um, a mirror that you can examine yourself through. And they're not perfectly right and they're not perfectly wrong, um, but they do help you understand another piece about yourself, which is uh, it, it will lead to a kind of more self, uh, self-fulfilled life. Mm. Well, thank you, Eric, for hanging out with us today. <laughs> You're welcome, Ken. I enjoyed the conversation. Uh, stay with us. Well, uh, Secrets of Success listeners, you know, when you think about life, just the story that Eric uh, started way back in the UK and moved through this journey of investigating technology and then now how technology really can serve us, not the other way around. Now, in all of that is how, how are you part of this? How can you be intentionally part of your own life in a positive affirming and fulfilling way. Well, guess what? That takes a little bit of effort on your part to get clear about who you are, what you bring to the table, and what might be possible. So go and get uh, Eric's book. And then, and when we think about talent transformation, learn more about it. Some of the things that he has in his model as far as uh, outcomes all the way down to, you know, emotional intelligence and everything in between. Now, as always, thank you for being a Secrets of Success listener. If you like what we're doing, please pass it on, share it, leave a positive comment on whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.